Estrogen is not only good for your brain, your bladder, and your bones, estrogen is also good for your blood vessels. And a lack of estrogen is one of the reasons that heart disease spikes in women post-menopause. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and nationally recognized women's health expert. When it comes to menopause, midlife, and what comes after, I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. But if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. I'm here to give you the inside information. Hormone therapy, if started within 10 years of the menopause transition, appears to be heart protective, but there's so many other factors that impact heart health. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Marla Mendelson, a cardiologist and associate professor of medicine at the Feinberg School of Medicine, Northwestern University. Dr. Mendelson is also the former co-director of the Women's Health Research Institute. Dr. Mendelson has devoted her career to the evaluation and treatment of women's cardiovascular health throughout the lifespan. We're going to talk about cardiovascular health, specifically during peri and post-menopause, including risk factors, how you screen for heart disease, and then we'll spend a little time talking about hormone therapy and the heart. So welcome, Dr. Mendelson. Thank you, Dr. Stryker. It's a pleasure to be here. There's a lot of ground to cover. And you know, I mentioned <laughs> yeah. I mentioned on Instagram that I was interviewing you and these questions came pouring in. So I'm going to do my best to get to as many of those questions as possible. For starters, and this is the obvious question, but I think it needs to be answered. Why is perimenopause and menopause such a perilous time when it comes to heart disease? Why does heart disease escalate in women? Well, it's a it's a complex answer. Um, what happens is is that women with natural estrogen and ovarian function have a protection against cardiovascular disease, um, and that's because the estrogen, as you alluded to uh, in your introduction, it has a beneficial effect on blood vessels, and it also has a beneficial effect on lipids or fat or cholesterol in the blood. At the time of menopause, perimenopause period, women start losing that estrogen and their risk of cardiovascular disease increases. Also, as they get older, their risk of hypertension, diabetes, all of these other factors which contribute to cardiovascular disease risk um, increase over time. So it all happens at the same time. And it's that age old question that I keep returning to. Is it midlife menopause or both? And it sounds like... Some of this is a consequence of aging, but a lot of it, of course, is estrogen related. You know, when you talk about the impact of estrogen on the on the blood vessels, can you be more specific? I mean, I, I know for one that estrogen is a vasodilator. It allows the blood vessels to deliver more blood, but but it, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Um, and that that's actually a very important function. And I think also the fact that estrogen works to control the lipids, which can pile on the wall of the blood vessels and cause blockages and cause therefore cause heart attacks, I think that's a part of the picture as well. So it's they're also estrogens are anti-inflammatory and um, that may be playing a whole role in the in the in the development of plaque and of cardiovascular disease. Now just to take a step back, when we talk about cardiovascular disease, we're talking about heart and blood vessels. And in the United States, the most common problem is atherosclerosis or hardening of the blood vessels, which is basically an accumulation of cholesterol plus other debris in the blood um, plaque, which blocks blood flow. And that blood flow can be in the arteries that surround the heart muscle and supply the heart muscle, um, or they could be the arteries in the neck, the head, the kidneys, down the legs, 
It's all part of the same picture and subject to the same physiologic process. It's so important because when we think in terms of cardiovascular health, most women are just focusing on the heart. They forget the vascular part, you know, and that we have blood vessels that supply every other part of our body so that when we're looking at things like blood clots in the lungs or in the legs or in the brain, you know, stroke, um, it, it's all part of the same picture. The other thing that is surprising to a lot of women is what you mentioned about the impact of estrogen on lipids, cholesterol and triglycerides. And some of the questions that came in were about, well, gee, my, my cholesterol is high. Does that mean I, I shouldn't take estrogen? And, and as we'll get to a little bit later, you know, no, that, that's not necessarily the case. I, I think there's a lot of confusion about the the impact estrogen and what what specifically it, it does. I want to put estrogen aside for a minute and because we're going to circle back to that. I want to focus for a little bit on other factors that impact on cardiovascular risk. And I want to start with family history. I don't know anybody who doesn't have at least one member of their family who's got some kind of heart trouble. So so what kind of family history is significant in terms of someone worrying about their own risk? Simply put, a first-degree family member, mother, father, brother, sister, child, who had an event before age 50, basically. Okay, um, define event. We're not talking about oh, a wedding. We're talking, no, about- I'm not talking about a wedding. A <laughs> cardiovascular event. Okay, so it's mostly a heart attack, warning heart attack, mild heart attack. It doesn't matter what kind of heart attack. That's mostly what we're talking to, talking about when we talk about a major cardiac event, Um, stroke is a little bit different because stroke is intimately related with hypertension. Um, Hypertension is usually the substrate for stroke, um, but cardiovascular disease or coronary artery disease is something we see that runs in families. There are other things that run in families too, and that can be other forms of heart disease that people can even be born with. Um, And that's a whole other subject, but but it's part of the the whole picture. Yeah. So, so if someone says my father, my mother uh, developed heart disease and died of heart disease in their 90s, that doesn't mean that they're particularly at risk based on their family history. Your point is that if someone truly has a risk secondary to their genetics, to their family history, that usually that's going to strike earlier. Is that correct? Right. Those are the ones that do strike earlier. It's before age 50 is sort of the the rule of thumb. So premenopausal women, um, men less than 50 um, or even earlier, those are the things we worry about. By the time somebody gets to be 90, whether they're a man or a woman, they may have accumulated other risk factors, smoking, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, which in and of themselves may play a role in coronary artery disease. Which brings me to my, my next question. We can't control who our relatives are, but is it true that up to 80% of heart disease is actually preventable, or is that an overstatement? It might be an overstatement. Yes, you you can't pick your parents, um, but there are a lot of things you can other you can do if you have that as a risk factor. There have been we've identified approximately five major risk factors for coronary disease, and you only need one of those: smoking, diabetes, hypertension, um, family history and hyper high cholesterol. Those are the big five. When we're talking about women, I add um, age of menopause because the earlier the menopause, the earlier the clock starts ticking for coronary artery disease. And particularly in women, obesity plays a huge role in cardiovascular risk. 
And those all may be independent of each other. But if you have the one risk factor, that's the time you really have to be aggressive about all the other things. One of the things that I'd like you to address is we know that cardiovascular disease is particularly high in, in Black women. And one of the things I've often thought about is that Black women have a disproportionate number of hysterectomies because of fibroid tumors. And very often those hysterectomies are young. And very often those hysterectomies involve removal of the ovaries and you know, hormone therapy is not always started. Do you think, I mean, this is just my own thought. I've never actually seen it studied, but I wonder if that has something to do with the high rates of cardiovascular disease in, uh, in black women. What are, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have several. The American Heart Association statistics show that the rates of hypertension are highest in African-American black females. And, um, and I think that plays a role in their cardiovascular risk. We can't avoid the elephant in the room is that if there's an access, there may be an access problem. I think the um, access problem is, is access, huge and can't be understated. And healthcare equity, um, and it's important. I think it's a complex issue. I think your your hypothesis is a very interesting one and would be very easy for people to study, especially in some of the large-scale diverse studies like MESA and things like that. Um, but I think there's so many factors. But it's only uh, it's only one piece of the puzzle. And I want to return um, to one of the risk factors you mentioned, smoking, the number of years versus the number of cigarettes. The data that I've seen shows that if you smoke four cigarettes, you are having the same deleterious uh, cardiovascular effects as if you smoke the whole pack. So I think that, uh, but certainly that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I think it is a, a process over many years and it, it um, it's very important. And actually, again, parenthetically, the rates of lung cancer have risen in women um, dramatically uh, with more women smoking. Now, yeah. you think that smoking is socially difficult and things like that, but there's still a lot of people smoking. Let's talk about obesity for a second. You know, very often we hear this phrase that while my weight is up, while I'm obese, I'm, I'm healthy. You know, one of the things about saying that you're healthy. I mean, I've always thought that it means that you're you're healthy now, but we all know that obesity has some very real risk factors, such as an increased risk of a number of cancers, including gynecologic cancers. So when it comes to heart health, what is your take on when someone who's obese says, I may have an extra 50 pounds, but I'm healthy? There is data that shows that in women, that when their BMI, it's um, body mass index, so it's your weight by your height in meters squared, in kilograms per meter squared, um, when that gets to be greater than 25, the, the curve of the line for coronary vascular disease, cardiac disease, goes dramatically up. There's data on large populations to show that. So I, you might be healthy at the moment. It is silently taking on blood pressure, on the heart, it's it's and the lipids, the, the fats in the blood is often untold and difficult to appreciate until you come up with the end problem, kidney failure, stroke, or heart attack. What mm -hmm. about women who develop hypertension during pregnancy? Is that a red flag for heart disease later in life? It's a giant red flag. 
Um, and it's any type of hypertension. It doesn't have to be preeclampsia or toxemia. It's any hypertension during pregnancy because the blood pressure is supposed to go down during pregnancy. Blood vessels dilate. You have the placenta, which is low pressure. But if blood pressure goes up at any point in pregnancy, that could be a big red flag of hypertension later in life. And as I mentioned before, with hypertension, it's, a, it's called the silent killer because you don't know you have it unless you go to the doctor and get your blood pressure taken, because it may just show up as end organ disease, which would be heart attack, stroke, or, or kidney failure. Um, and it goes up in women as they, as they age, emphasizes the importance of regular checkups. And I don't care where your blood pressure is being taken, but it should be taken properly, but at least once or twice a year, especially if you had hypertension during uh, a pregnancy. How do you feel about home blood pressure monitors? Home blood pressure monitors can be very good. So it's important to get a good one. But the most important thing you can do with your blood pressure, home blood pressure monitor, is bring it to your next office visit and make sure it's calibrated against your physician's blood pressure. Because oh, I love that idea. And you know, I've never thought to do that. And that makes so much sense. But I think we also have to acknowledge that women don't go to the doctor. They don't. You know, it's so funny how during the reproductive years, we know that women will go if they need contraception or if they're pregnant. But then they don't. They, they're focusing on taking their kids to the pediatrician. And unless someone has something really wrong going on, the idea of just going to the doctor just to go has pretty much gone by the wayside for a variety of reasons. Obviously, there's there's access. People also don't appreciate how important it is. So if you are listening and if you developed high blood pressure during your pregnancy, you do not have a hall pass from going to the doctor. You really need to make sure that, as Dr. Mendelson says, you're getting your blood pressure taken a couple of times a year, even if you are otherwise feeling okay. Before we get to other screening and when and how and all that, as I want to focus on a few other risk factors. So um, belly fat, what about, you know, we talked about being overweight in general, but does it matter where that weight is? Yes. Um, central obesity is more commonly associated with coronary artery disease. And that's why they used to talk about, they love this in the popular press, talking about apples versus pears. Men tend to have their, their weight more central, their obesity more central, their apples, higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Women tend to traditionally wear around their hips. But you notice at the time of menopause, women start getting more central obesity, and that has been associated. That's the bad type of fat, and that's been associated with um, coronary artery disease and, and cardiovascular risk. Yeah, that was actually one of the questions that came in through Instagram is a woman wanted to know if you get that midsection fat, is that just an indication of menopause or is it also an indication of, of cardiovascular disease? And so your answer appears to be both. It well, appears at the time of menopause and you can happens, blame it on yeah. menopause, but it yeah. also is an indication of heart health. Yeah, so, so it's something that somebody should pay attention and that's not healthy fat. You know, so that should be addressed and you do what you can. You do what you can as far as Spanks. exercise. <laughs> Spanks is, does Spanx work yeah. for heart health if it gets rid of that fat? I'm just, it, just it just rearranges it. It doesn't exactly. get rid of it. That's why exercise, we haven't talked about exercise, yeah. Yeah. but and the flip side, a sedentary lifestyle is a risk factor. So that's important. And that's important for men and women yeah. uh, to maintain throughout life, and especially in women, because it, it also helps with bone health. 
So this is something that women need to do more of as they okay, age. All right. Define, first of all, sedentary, because some people's definition of sedentary is very different than other people's. And then there's a difference between activity and exercise. So being active and walking and being up and around, that's not exercise. So could you go through those three things? How do you define sedentary? How much activity do you need? And then how much exercise and what kind of exercise? Sedentary is basically staying in one position with no change in your heart rate. Okay. You're watching TV, you're on your Zoom calls, you're on, you're at working from your home that is sedentary. And so you're not moving. Movie everyday activity should incorporate enough vigorous exercise. And there's just been going back and forth in the literature about this. But I think the best recommendation is first of all, the 10,000 steps, although they say 8,000 may be enough, but 10,000 steps a day is a good baseline activity. If you want to improve your cardiovascular risk profile, if you want to lose weight, uh, if you want to condition your body and maybe get rid of that stuff in the middle, um, then you need to do 150 minutes a week of exercise that gets your heart rate up. And your heart rate up, the, the rule of thumb is 220 if you're healthy and don't have other underlying disease, 220 minus your age. And then about 90% of that is your heart rate target. So yeah, I, we're going to do a little math today. So that that would be a heart rate target for you know um, therapeutic exercise. But the baseline exercise has been uh, activity of 10,000 steps has been shown to be very, very uh, beneficial. In, we're not, in we're not talking studies. about sex today, but you and I have, have done a seminar together, <laughs> Sex After Heart Attack, How to Make Sure You Come and Don't Go. And we really talk about <laughs> sex after a cardiac event. And it just struck me when you were talking about your definition of sedentary, that your heart rate doesn't go up. As you recall, in my lecture on that, when they were monitoring people who were having sex with their regular partner in their usual place, the heart rate doesn't go up. I no. mean, it's sad, but true that I guess the sex <laughs> with your regular partner in your bedroom is considered to be a sedentary activity, just saying. And and okay, we're, we're going to move on. But we're I do want There's quality of life and then there's prolongation exactly. of life. So there you go. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about diet a little bit because the Mediterranean diet is, is what is out there in terms of, of, of heart health from what I hear. Do you agree mm -hmm. with that? Absolutely. I think it's prudent. I think you don't drown your food in, in olive oil because that's deleterious. I once gave a lecture called uh, 411. And it was, you know, people talk about wine, chocolate and alcohol, 411. Four ounces of red wine has proven to be beneficial. And the studies were done by the Pinot growers. So you have to take that into account. Um, one ounce of dark chocolate. Um, again, that study was was supported by the chocolate people and then one ounce of olive oil and one ounce of olive oil is what you should be using in your cooking. Even if it's probably best to spray it, dunking your bread in it probably gives you more than you need. And then it starts having deleterious. So good, especially if you sprinkle some cheese. Too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, that's not, on, I don't think that's on the Mediterranean diet. No. <laughs> One ounce for a whole day isn't very much if you cook a lot with olive oil. No, that's why you have to spray it. 
Do you have an opinion about intermittent fasting? You have an opinion about everything. What's your opinion on intermittent fasting? Well, I want to get back to the Mediterranean diet because I've always, that's the the advice I give to people in the office, fish, chicken, fruits, and vegetables. You know, that's the basis of anything. And I did that before they called it Mediterranean. I, I think it's important. It has health benefits. Intermittent fasting, I I can't really speak to that. I'm not a, a nutritionist or an endocrinologist. But there's, um, no, but there's no deleterious effects on the heart as far as you know. No. I know I know that the caveman, you know, had a, you know, fasted a lot, um, but they didn't live very long either. So it's it's hard to to look at that. Same, same thing with that keto diet, which don't even get me started about yeah, that. That is thanks. not heart healthy. And you just cannot say bacon in the presence of a cardiologist and, you know, expect <laughs> the watching them to cluster their chest in panic. <laughs> Intermittent fasting, I think it's just a form of behavior modification. I think that a lot of people need behavior modification to control their appetite. There's, you know, this is not cardiac or medical right now, but just uh, as observing the population, there's a lot of interest now in some of these appetite suppressing drugs. And that's great. But when you stop taking the drug, your appetite is no longer suppressed. And maybe you've modified your behavior, but most often not. And sometimes the result of intermittent fasting is gorging. It's like it's like when you're stressed out, you go, oh, stress causes heart attacks. Well, stress in itself, yes, it releases um, adrenaline and that's not good for the body. It increases the heart rate. But but, you, you know, it's it causes you to eat poorly. It causes you to sleep poorly. So it results in a lot of unhealthy habits. Let's talk about screening a little bit. And I'd like to start with a woman who has no major risk factors that she's aware of, no significant family history, is in her, say, mid to late 40s. What should she be doing to screen for heart health? Well, there's a lot of different um, recommendations about screening. Um, I would take a very common sense approach, again, making sure she doesn't have a family history or she her basic um, metabolic state should be examined, not only just by laboratory results, but by looking at her. If she, if she walks into my office and she's 40 pounds overweight, has central obesity, this woman I'm very worried about. If a woman comes to see me and has had a history of polycystic ovary syndrome, which has a lot of metabolic factors associated with it, I'm very worried about her too. Yeah. Um, Stop there for one second, because we didn't talk about that. You know, we talked about high blood pressure and pregnancy, but polycystic ovarian syndrome is very common. Up to one in 10 women have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And yet you don't hear very much about the long-term potential cardiac impact. So could you speak to that? It's it's controversial because I think there actually are probably more in the in the population that have it, but they don't come to medical attention because there's no fertility issue. Yeah. I think one thing that's fascinating medically is that there's a lot of metabolic derangement associated with polycystic ovary syndrome. There is uh, often high testosterone levels, high blood pressure, uh, central obesity, high fasting glucose which are all things that we also call syndrome X and associated with cardiovascular risk later in life, very common in women, but a lot of women and infertility. So what they do to, uh, which you know, this is to, to foster fertility, 
They treat them with metformin, which is a diabetes medicine, which improves their glucose utilization, and then they become fertile. So I think there's such an interesting tie between the the whole metabolic system and fertility and all of these things. And hormones, it all comes down to hormones. Yeah. Yeah, Because when we think in terms of having an appropriate amount of estrogen and and progesterone in, in a young woman... Um, and the impact that that has on the heart later in life when you no longer have that benefit. And PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, is an early manifestation of this alteration in normal hormone levels. So it, I think we have a lot more work to do in this. A lot. Yeah, no, that's, that is something we need to know more about. But all right, so to circle back again, just to close the loop on the woman with no family history, she walks in your door, she's not overweight, she really just looks like she's a pretty typical healthy-ish woman in her late 40s, early 50s. What are you going to tell her to do to screen for heart disease? Um, I would probably screen for metabolic factors, which simply is lipids, fasting glucose. Um, Those are two very important tests that will tell us if this is a woman at risk that we're not really suspecting. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time of menopause or perimenopause, I think when we know that the lipids, the cholesterol goes up, the bad cholesterol goes up, the good cholesterol goes down, that's when we need to start screening more often in women. How often is a general guideline? Once a year, every six months, once every five it years? Once, I think it should be once, at least once a year. I think there, there's guidelines coming out of like a lot of different places that say five years, but it's always interesting to note that the screening is often less often in women, less common in women. Yeah, um, of, everything so, is, yeah, yeah, when it comes to that. So I, I don't think we've really worked that out very well, but I think that um, that would be the important thing. And then if a woman has cardiac symptoms and, and, or she has, uh, has been identified as having a metabolic risk factor, um, and maybe has some symptoms. Those are the times when her primary physician might enlist the aid of a cardiologist. All right. So what about the woman who comes to you and says, I'm fine. I feel fine. Everything's great. I'm 45 years old, but my father had his first cardiac event when he was 48 and both of his brothers, died by the time they were 50, what should I do to know if I'm at risk? How would you screen that woman? I'm not, I'm not asking what would you tell her to do as far as maintaining heart health, yeah. you know, because she's going to do all the things she's already doing it. She's, she's very no. worried. She's on the Mediterranean diet. She's, okay. she's exercising. She is doing everything she can. She wants to know what kind of screening she should have. And a woman like that, I would get a baseline stress test. Whether her insurance company would agree with that, I don't know. But I would get a baseline stress test because if she does have chest pain later on, you're going to want to know that she had a normal stress test at 45 and what's going on here at 50. Uh, I'd be very concerned about that particular person. How often when you get that baseline stress test in an otherwise healthy woman, do you get this surprise that the stress test is actually abnormal when she had no other indication of a problem? It's not uncommon. Yeah. So it's not just my point being the point of the stress test isn't just to have the baseline for later. It's because if there's a family history that may uncover that there is an underlying heart problem. The other thing you can do that some people do is the uh, calcium screen looking for coronary calcium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the 
The marker, coronary calcium is a marker for, for plaque within the arteries. That's another screening tool, but because it involves radiation to the chest, I don't particularly recommend getting it as a regular screening tool. I think if you have a confusing stress test, I think a stress test is great because I'm expecting her to pass that stress test and then I can give her good recommendations for exercise. And then she knows how hard she should be working during exercise so that she can maximize her time. A question came in from a woman who'd had chemotherapy because some chemotherapy, of course, does affect the heart. And she wanted to know what kind of screening you would recommend given a history of chemotherapy with no other red flags. That's a great question. And actually at Northwestern, we have a program for people who had cancer as children or young adults who received cardiotoxic, particularly cardiotoxic uh, chemotherapy or radiation to the chest, which could have late effects. And these are late effects. They can be several years later. And so the patients are followed pretty closely. Um, in my particular interest, because of the interest in pregnancy in these patients and that pregnancy can challenge uh, the heart, um, I want those women to have an examination of their heart, imaging of their heart before they get pregnant, just to make sure because the the chemotherapies can can cause some heart muscle um, scarring that doesn't affect their day-to-day function. But if you add all the blood volume and the changes of pregnancy, they could end up having a problem. The other thing that radiation does is it can affect the heart valves much later, causing them to calcify way earlier than they would. And I've seen women who've had um, radiation for breast cancer have valve calcification that require surgery. Breast cancer, lymphoma, and breast cancer on the left side, um, where the, the radiation's on the left, um, I've seen that where we've had to send women to surgery because their valves got so calcified. Yeah, so those are women that need to be watched They closely. need to be checked. They need yeah. to be checked. So let's talk about um, warning signs. We've talked about screening and, and risk factors, and, and women um, <laughs> very often ignore warning signs, either because they're just too busy with other things to pay attention to to what's going on in their own bodies, or they're not aware that that these warning signs are just that, an indication that, that there's trouble. So could you walk us through what kinds of things women should be paying attention to? There have been studies done of people who've had heart attacks and men and women. And it turns out that the men and the women both had chest pain before. Um, The chest pain in women may not be grab your chest and keel over type of chest pain. It could be more subtle. It could be lower jaw pain. It could be neck pain. It could be um, a stomach, upper stomach pain. It could be pain down, usually the left arm, but it could be the right as well. And the reason for that is that some people posit that women have a higher pain threshold than men, but... There's no definite proof of that, but um, that women, that the nerves that supply all the heart feed into the spinal cord at the same place as all these other areas. And so the brain can't always differentiate that. Oh yeah, this is coming from the heart and indigestion. That's another one, but you have to look at the context. So if a, a person gets indigestion, walking up a flight of stairs, that could be cardiac. If somebody 
it gets indigestion after spicy food, obviously less likely. People get chest pain when they're exerting themselves. If you used to pay single tennis, but now you can only get through a game of doubles, there may be something wrong there. So we look for subtle signs or even dramatic signs in somebody who has risk factors. When you um, talk about the atypical you know, chest pain and arm pain and jaw pain and all of that, does it matter how long it lasts? I mean, there's a very big difference between someone who says, I had some pain down my arm and it lasted about 10 seconds and it went away. Should that woman be worried? It depends on the context. Usually we're talking about things that last longer. I had a friend who was driving in his car and he goes, you know, this chest discomfort, like the whole time I was on the highway. And he had obviously had risk factors and checked them out. And he had significant coronary disease that needed to be addressed. So again, we get into people's perception of pain, their pain threshold. Denial plays a big role. But if somebody has multiple risk factors and they're having indigestion every time they walk up a flight of stairs, uh, that should be checked out. You need to pay attention. You use the word heart attack. And heart attack is one of those words that we hear a lot. But I'm not so sure that people know what the word heart attack even means. So Dr. Mendelssohn, define heart attack. Heart attack. Heart attack is defined as a otherwise known as a myocardial infarction, which means blood vessel that supplied blood to an area of the heart was blocked by plaque and blood clot, and blood did not get down to a particular part of the heart muscle, and that heart muscle dies. And as it's it's being deprived of oxygen, it causes pain. It can also cause arrhythmia. Now, in the vernacular, everyone talks about heart attack is could be, you know, like, oh, my mom had a heart attack. Well, it turns out that she may have had an arrhythmia or she had something else. But a heart attack is really to be a myocardial infarction. And that's usually presents with chest pain, shortness of breath, sweating, elevated heart rate. And it is, it is an emergent situation because we have the technology and wherewithal to go in there when somebody walks in the door of the emergency room and we identify that they're having a heart attack, we get them up into the cath lab, we go into that artery and we open up the artery and save the heart muscle. So this is why time is of the essence when we're talking about a heart attack. And why people have to pay attention to these symptoms and not just brush them yeah, off. Yeah, I mean, it's so classic, Lauren. Um, women for years have been driving their husbands to the emergency room if they have any pain between their jaw and their belly button. And yet they've been, studies have shown that they stay home, take Tums for their heart attack. I know, I know. So that's why we're here. That's <laughs> why we're here talking And about I thank this. you for doing this. All right, let's talk about my favorite topic, Hot flashes, because you did mention <laughs> earlier, you knew else. we were going to get there, right? Okay. But no, but seriously, I think you know, we, I, I sound like a broken record, but I talk all the time about hot flashes are not just about quality of life. It's about length of life, because we do have good data that shows that there is an association of women who have hot flashes and who have heart disease. When you look at the SWAN data that we've talked about so often, it's not all women that develop heart disease. It seems to be really skewed towards the women that have hot flashes, which I think and the data shows some of those very good data shows that there is more calcium in blood vessels, that it's this inflammatory response that you get with hot flashes. So that's my point of view. What's your point of view? 
I think we have a lot to learn about that. I think there's a, it makes a lot of sense teleologically. It makes a lot of sense because we know that endothelial dysfunction, so that's a long word to describe the inside of an artery. And endothelial dysfunction is when the inside of the artery is no longer smooth, but it becomes rough and inflamed. And anything that's going to cause that is going to be a perfect seeding ground for uh, plaque formation. So it is a an inflammatory state. And I think if we looked at the inflammatory markers, especially in someone who's having a vasomotor symptoms from menopause, those are the same markers um, that we yeah. see. And I think it is an, an inflammatory state. And I think that's what's going to prove out. And that's where where the risks come in. And People, people, there's other types of endothelial dysfunction. You see it in diabetes, you see it in obesity, you see it at the time of menopause, anyhow. And may and it makes sense that it be related to a vasomotor phenomenon. Uh, we have some evidence of the of the link. We're not sure. I mean, if if estrogen is actually the answer for that, it may be some other type of drug that suppresses the inflammation might be better. Who knows? Right. It might be. And this is one of the big questions is, do you need to give women estrogen or do you just need to get rid of the hot flashes? However, you get rid of them. And certainly there are a number of new drugs that are about uh, to, to get approved that are not estrogen that almost eliminate hot flashes and we don't have any data at all in no, terms no of the impact on the on the on the heart but it will be interesting to look at right, i'm going to ask you a question and i want you to be you know brutally honest in your answer if, you ever know me not to be i know i know <laughs> um if you personally you dr mendelson see a woman in her 50s who's at risk for heart disease do you number 1 ask her about her hot flashes and number 2 if she says, oh, yeah, I am flashing like crazy, do you then recommend that she do something to get rid of her hot flashes to decrease her risk of heart disease? Being sort of a, you know, you know, glass half empty, glass half full, I'm more of a person with two glasses. So I look at everything as an opportunity. So this woman comes in, she's got risk factors, she's having hot flashes in my office. She is miserable. She can't get through life. You know, I can tell her to exercise, but that's not going to happen because she's just so uncomfortable. I think it's a great opportunity for me to look at her cardiovascular status, do a stress test, have some sort of baseline idea of what's going on with her, start talking to her about being aggressively treating all of her other risk factors and saying, well, of course you can take estrogen. And we should reevaluate. That's not my my question. (laughs) There's a difference between saying, of course, you can take estrogen. I know you would say that. But do you ever say, you know, those hot flashes may be impacting on your cardiovascular risk, so you need to do something to get rid of them? That's a very different recommendation than, of course, you can take estrogen. I'm not in my practice because I don't I don't have the, I don't know other than estrogen, how do you get rid of those because I'm just a cardiologist. Well, I don't expect you to know how to get rid of them. That's what we're here for. <laughs> Just like if someone comes and says to me, my cholesterol is high, can you help me? And I say, no, but I'm going to send you to go see Dr. Mendelssohn. <laughs> but, um, but I know but enough. No, to, I always, no, my I point is, is, if a woman comes in and I measure her cholesterol, I know enough to say your cholesterol is really high and this is going to 
impact your heart health. And therefore, you need to see a cardiologist to get that in control. And so what I'm asking you is, if you see a woman, do you, the way I ask about cholesterol, do you ask about hot flashes and say, this is a risk factor, you need to do something about your hot flashes? I will identify if a woman is going through menopause and when she is, and if she's having symptoms of menopause. If she's having symptoms of menopause, I tell her, you need to go see your gynecologist and take, and, and take care of it. But usually it's actually the other way around is because most of my internal medicine colleagues are not real thrilled about estrogen to this very day. Um, and so I'll get patients in from gynecologists saying, you know, she's got this, this and this and this. Do you think it's okay to take? Um, estrogen. And then I say, well, it's a great time to do a full cardiac workup, make sure everything is okay. And then I think it's, it's okay. Cause you know, that's sort of that in, in my, how my practice yeah. works. All right. I know that, that you're one of the cardiologists that knows the data and you're comfortable with hormone therapy, but you just kind of threw out there that most of your, the other cardiologists are not. And this is just a huge mystery to me because we've just spent the last 45 minutes talking about how important estrogen is in terms of vascular health and heart health. And we have really good data from the WHI that if you start hormone therapy early in the menopause transition before you've had this vascular damage, that in fact, it may mitigate it. And we have good data that shows that you know there is an inflammatory response and that this also may help. And we know that Hormone therapy decreases cholesterol. We know that transdermal hormone therapy decreases triglycerides. Why aren't the cardiologists on board with this? Explain it to me. Well, I think they're, you know, it's a hormone, so it's scary. And um, and so I'm the, scared the, of statins, but it doesn't mean I don't <laughs> send you to But also there was a head-to-head comparison of estrogen's effect on cholesterol versus a statin, and the statin did better. Well, of um, course, but we're not talking about yeah. statins versus. But yeah, they won't use it. Internal medicine won't use it. Um, they're they're very concerned about it um, as far as risks, and that's why I think. It's what risk? Give me the give me a risk of a transdermal estrogen that anyone. No, no, I'm just saying about. they're perceived risks. It's a perceived okay. risk, but that's perceived. the important point. It's perceived yeah. risk because even if you look at the blood clot risk, which is a real risk in oral estrogens, first of all, that risk is very, very small in young women. It gets you know higher as other risk factors in women age. But in the transdermal data, when we give estrogen via a patch, a, a spray, a gel, and we're not talking about the vaginal stuff. That's like no risk at all. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about systemic estrogen given through the skin that not only does that decrease cholesterol and decrease triglycerides, but it does not increase the risk of blood clot. And so do cardiologists not know that? You do. I know you know that data. But in general, do you find that other cardiologists are not aware of that? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, we're very oh. much siloed. And I think that um, I think the the greater concern, it's not the cardiologists who who you need to worry about. It's the internal medicine people because they're not. I think you're right because what happens, of course, is gynecologists. I've had a lifetime of telling women to take hormone therapy and then they go to their internists who get this horrified look on their face and said, oh, my God, you know, your gynecologist gave you hormone therapy. Stop immediately. Right. And, And then the other problem we have, of course, is we talked about that women generally don't go to doctors. And if they do go to doctors over the age of 40, they're not going to their gynecologist. 
they're going to a, a family doctor or they're going to an internist. And while there are exceptions, most family doctors and internists are not experts when it comes to hormone therapy. They don't yeah. know the data. And it's just fascinating to me because, you know, again, if a woman comes to me and her internist has put her on a medication, I'm not going to say, oh, well, gee, you know, I've heard that that antihypertensive drug has bad side effects and I've heard statins have bad side effects and I want you to stop. I would never do that. Mm-hmm. Yet I put my patients on um, hormone therapy and they go to their internist who doesn't, you know, they don't call me. They don't ask me. They just say, you know, don't, stop it, don't stop it. Don't go there. So the devil's drug. Yeah. I, I know it's, it's really frustrating because I mean, here we have heart disease is the number one killer of women. Breast cancer is not. And we know that estrogen does not increase breast cancer. We've you know talked about that again and again and again in, in, in this podcast. And yet we have women who are not taking estrogen out of fear of breast cancer, which it does not cause. And I maintain that it only increases their risk of heart disease, which is really what's going to kill them. So we have a real problem here in terms of educating not only women, but but no, more a, to the point to their to their doctors. Yeah. To their doctors who are really giving misinformation. And I I don't know what the answer is other than to do what you and I keep doing, but we don't seem to be making a big impact. No, no. Uh-uh. It's it, it is a problem. It is a problem. I think and we see this in other aspects of women's health. It's it's a problem. You know, we're talking about half the population here. So it's we're talking about half the population. And one of the things I know that you have done a tremendous amount of work in is the disparity in terms of research in in women and men. And and certainly over the years, most of the medications that you use today in cardiovascular world were initially tested in men. All, all you said. That was actually one of the questions that came in on Instagram was a woman wanted to know, you know, she'd been given an antihypertensive medication and she wanted to know, was it tested in women or only in men? And your answer is no, no, men. Now in Japan, if you want to sell a drug to Japan, uh, you have to have tested it in a certain number of Japanese subjects before they will allow the drug to be distributed in Japan. Yeah. We don't have that here. It's- okay, but wait, but how about? I mean, I know that's the case for for older drugs, but I thought that over the last five to ten years that the FDA had changed these requirements so that if a new drug comes out, say you know it's in development right now and comes out in the next year or two, you're telling me that that drug will be released to men and women, even if it's only been tested in men. Correct, but. Research studies, if you go to do a research study and you look for government money, you have to have an equal amount of men and women in your study. Pharmaceutical companies are not going for government money. It's it's No, but a lot of it, that is a standard. That's, that's a national standard, but not everybody abides by it. Yeah, You still see this in some of you in our literature. It's getting better. But the for heart failure, heart failure is an equal opportunity offender. But yet in heart failure studies, there may be 35 percent women. You know, I didn't know that. I knew that in the older drugs that it had only been tested in men. I was under the impression that currently you require testing in both men and women in order to get FDA approval for a drug that is going to be used by both men and women. This and- is really scary. Because yeah. women are not little men. We've established no. that. And, and we've got that. We, we, we the, the proposal went through several years ago through the NIH, through the government to regulate research. But 
But pharma, you can't, you're not going to regulate. Wow. Any last words, Dr. Mendelson, anything we did not talk about that you want to take this opportunity to mention before we close this out? What you're doing here helps women and men, for that matter, um, start being advocates for themselves and asking good questions, asking questions of their physicians and make sure that their questions are answered. Uh, I think it helps give them sort of the background uh, to to make questions and to have a discussion. And um, it's an important thing once you seek advice to start carrying it out because the benefits may not be accrued in a week or two, but they have long-term benefit and uh, will result in saving lives. And I think that's that's the bottom line here. And it's important that people get good information. Mm -hmm. They get the right information. Thank you so much for spending this hour with me. We have to do this again because there is a lot that we did not cover. We could spend hours, hours <laughs> talking about, well, anything you and I, including shoes and, you know, <laughs> and fine wine. But but seriously, when it comes to heart health, um, we, we've just scraped the surface here. So I look forward to further conversations and thank you. It'll be my pleasure. Thank you so much, Lauren, for inviting me and for doing this. I think it's a, a very important service. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Fall!